0: If you're uh, sitting out in the foyer and you'd like a better seat, there's some new ones up here in the front that have just opened. And uh, every head will be bowed and every eye closed in case you want to sneak up during that time. (laughs) He has risen. Now let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that we can come together as co heirs of Jesus Christ, adopted as not only part of your family, but as privileged sons and daughters into your kingdom. And we celebrate that this day. And now as we've had this time to both lift our voices in praise and to hear the praise of of others, now we continue to worship you and praise you through the proclamation of your word and the careful attention to it. And though these words are quite familiar to us, God, we ask that you would please breathe into them freshly by your Holy Spirit, that we may be nourished, that we may be fed, that we may be changed. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. There was a movie that came out online um, in 2022 called What is a Woman? Did you see this? It was, it was released by commentator Matt Walsh on the Daily Wire. And so he's presenting this question. He's just asking a bunch of people the question, what is a woman? And so he asked a variety of people, including politicians and a pediatrician, a gender studies professor, a psychologist, a gender-affirming family, and a marriage therapist. And in each case, although everyone did know the answer, no one would give him an answer. They were were almost afraid to. So it seems that just asking the question is a rather hostile move. And so it made a lot of people very mad that he would even ask the question. Walsh said he made the movie What is a Woman because four years earlier in a tweet, He had posted that essential question and nobody seemed able to answer it. And so during the production, Walsh said, most of the people we talked to either didn't want to talk about it or they appeared to be confused about something as simple as what a woman is. When asked himself if he could define the question, what is a woman? He said, an adult human female. I would give I would have given an answer that is biological because it's 100% the answer. I think gender ideology can be beaten because it cannot withstand any scrutiny at all. And so all it requires is us to have a little bit of boldness to look at it in the face and ask some basic question. Um, he said he deliberately wanted to ask the question of people that he knew would disagree with him because he wanted to get the answers that he sought. But ironically, just for, ans- just for asking the question, he's been labeled as a hate monger. He's been labeled as horribly transphobic and disingenuine. He's even received death threats because he asked the question. At the end of the film, Walsh is frustrated because nobody will answer the question. Apparently, nobody can answer the question. So he asks his wife, what is a woman? And she says, an adult female human who needs help, help opening this jar. So that, that's how the <laughs> that's how the story ends it's interesting because apparently everybody knows the answer but they needed to be reminded once again um, of of the the challenge of answering something that's very obvious i'm glad noah didn't have problems although he was not a biologist he was apparently able to distinguish the women from the men to come on the ark and ah, never mind <laughs> at any rate there's a significant challenge before each of us here today um, there's a significant challenge for me because I have to present to you a story that you have heard literally dozens of times in the past and you are very familiar with it, but the challenge for me is that I have to deliver it to you in such a way that is novel, that's fresh, that it's enlightening and creates an idea that you hadn't occurred, hadn't occurred to you before. Your challenge is that though you know the story very well, um, you have to... Uh, learn something new from it. You have to hear it in a way that it's fresh. You have to learn something in a way that leads you to worship God, to worship Christ Jesus, and to learn from the very familiar story something new and fresh again. And yes, if you come here only Christmas and Easter, it's true, I only have two sermons. One of them's about Easter and the other is a Christmas. (laughs) And this is my only suit. They have no other suits, no other shirts, and no other ties. because this is what I wear, Christmas and Easter. So I'd like you to to take your Bibles with me, and will you turn to the Easter story that's told for us in Mark chapter 16, verse 1. Maybe what we're going to hear today is not novel. Um, Maybe we've heard it before, but maybe we need to hear it in such a way that we hear this old, old story again in such a way that we are changed by it. Of course, when you come to hear an Easter sermon, there's a certain amount of expectation. You think that my job here is to persuade you that the resurrection really happened. And most Easter sermons, in fact, do that. They're just to prove the resurrection. But really, the more important question is not what proves the resurrection. The more important question is what does the resurrection prove? And to arrive at that, we have to uh, review the outline of events that the Bible has stated. And we have several different sources in the Bible, several different eyewitnesses, who each saw this account in a different way. Before we look to Mark's account, let's try to harmonize or condense all the different accounts together to talk about what's happened in the resurrection story. So the gospel makes it clear that what took place took place on the first day of the week, and that being the Jewish week, which was Sunday. So people ask, why do Christians come to worship on Sunday if the Sabbath is Saturday? And the reason that we worship on Sunday is that's the Lord's Day. That's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. That's the day that the Holy Spirit came and established the church. But it's the first day of the week along the Jewish week. And this day was very much unlike any other Sunday, any other first day of the week that had happened before. In this particular Sunday, an angel of the Lord, who had the appearance of like lightning, Um, who was white as snow, this is according to Matthew 28, came and rolled away the stone that covered the entrance of the tomb, not so that Jesus could get out because he was already gone, but so that the disciples could get in and see where Jesus had been. When this angel came, there was an earthquake. The Roman soldiers perceived this unearthly being. This was a a close encounter of the third kind, and they became terrified. They became like dead men. On this Easter Sunday morning, several women, not just one or two, but at least four women, come to the tomb because they want to pay their last respects to Jesus. They, uh, we are told that it included Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, um, Joanna, and Salome. And they arrive at the tomb very early in the morning and their purpose is that they want to anoint the body of Jesus. Now, they had seen Jesus die. They had seen Jesus being taken down off of the cross. They had seen Joseph take Jesus' body and they had seen that that he was prepared with a hundred pounds of embalming stuff. And so they didn't think that they were going to do that for Jesus. What they wanted to do is pay their last respects. Whatever they were offering was not the, the pre- preparation for death. What they were offering was that they wanted to pay their last respects. And so uh, they get there and they see that the stone has already been rolled away. And then Mary Magdalene leaves the group and she runs to tell Peter and John what had happened. And then the angels then appear to Salome and the other Mary, Mary the mother of James, explaining that Jesus has risen, um, just as he said he would be, And then the angel invites them to come in and look to see where Jesus had been lain. That's uh, Matthew chapter 28 again. Uh, Later, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene and the other women, then to Peter. Then over a period of 40 days, Jesus continues his appearing to several other eyewitnesses, including Thomas, who doubted uh, that Jesus was actually alive again, that it was really him. Um, Jesus appears to Peter, along with some other disciples along the Sea of Galilee. There he uh, shares a a fish breakfast with them. Um, Luke and Paul then give us these uh, bold testimonies of Jesus' appearances. Um, uh, Luke says he presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during the 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul reminds us that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. What Paul is saying is by the time he had written his account, which was about 55 AD, there were still a lot of people alive who were eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. So if you doubted the story, you could go ask these eyewitnesses what he's reporting. Now, with that harmony of the gospel having to do with the post-resurrection appearances, Let's take a look at Mark's particular account. Let's look to see what Mark has to say. Mark chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter... That he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment. It seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So unlike myths, the story that we're looking at today is actually recorded by eyewitnesses—people who actually saw the risen Christ Jesus—and. That these eyewitnesses would have been proven to be very credible sources in any court of law. They each told the story from their own point of view. They were, had slightly different wrinkles of what they had seen, but um, the, the one clear, uh, unarguable point was that Jesus Christ, who was dead, is now alive. He's risen from the dead three days later. This same Jesus who was declared to be the Son of God, who fulfilled the role of the last Passover lamb, who took death on himself in behalf of his people, who became the atonement sacrifice. Atonement means that you've, you've made a restitution. You've done something to satisfy the person to the debt that you owed. Um, this Jesus who, who bore the judgment of God through his, his bloody death, um, he died as a substitute for us. He died in our place. And I heard an interesting account uh, on Friday. Someone said, well, what's so good about Good Friday? That's when you say your Savior died. Here's what's good about Good Friday. You deserved to be on that cross, and somebody else was a substitute to take your place. That's what's good about Good Friday. any anyway, rate, three days later, Jesus bodily rises from the dead, because death can hold no power over him. And then John would reflect this um, several years later. He said, for as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he might rise again from the dead. But he says they, they didn't recognize, they didn't know. Remember, we talked several weeks about all the things you don't know. You don't know what's going on, which is so much greater than what you experience or think that's what's happening only in your life. They didn't understand it yet, but notice the term must. They must. There's no alternate plan. There wasn't a plan B. There's no other way that someone can have access to God except by this offering of Jesus. And so it's because of the one who death does not have a hold on that we then, whom death does have a hold on, are freed from death. Now, as each gospel writer begins to relate his story, each one tells us a l- something a little bit different. It's not that they don't agree with one another, they're just telling us different aspects of the same story. For instance, John focuses only on Mary Magdalene. Luke tells us that, there, that these, uh, these women had fo- that had followed Jesus from Galilee, they, they saw the tomb, they saw where his body had laid, and then they returned with these burial spices, uh, and then he identifies Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, and then he just mentions, and also other women. And then Mark and Matthew concur that it was Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women. And then Mark tells us that this also includes Salome. They're not, they're not disagreeing with each other. They're telling us different aspects of the same story. Luke goes on to tell us that these women um, were very familiar with Jesus. They traveled with him when he was traveling around on his preaching itinerary. They, They learned from him. They listened to his teaching. They watched Jesus in his example of kindness to other people. He watched as Jesus spent time with people that others disregarded. He healed them. He he touched them. He gave them food. He liberated them from, from demonization. He, he hang out He would hang out with lepers and with tax gatherers and the, the adulterers and the demon possessed and people that had putrid infestations and he would touch these people and love these people and these women who traveled around with the disciples there was probably a, a hundred or more people that followed, not just the 12 disciples. These women watched Jesus and they saw how he behaved towards people and they loved him. And when they, when they saw Jesus loving others, they loved him more. Now something totally unexpected happens. They were with Jesus last Sunday when Jesus enters into Jerusalem with this great triumphal entry and and announces himself to be Israel's Messiah. And then they were there when Jesus is arrested. They watched while Jesus is crucified. They saw him die. And they watched while Joseph and Nicodemus claimed the body and took it away for, for, for burial. And they're wondering... How did all this happen? You know, How did last Sunday, everybody's welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem, but now he's dead? How did the religious leaders and the civil leaders collude together to do something as insane as crucifying the Messiah? And then they watch this slow plotting of Jesus who's been convicted of, of a capital offense, and he's paraded through town, and he's taken to a place of execution, and they were there when he flinches as the nails are driven through his wrists and through his, his ankles. And they were there for the, the smell of blood and the, the moaning cries of the three criminals being executed. And they were there when the soldiers lifted him up on the, the, the vertical bar. They watched him die. And they watched him taken down. And they watched his body being claimed, and they watched him where he was buried. And so now, this Sunday, they're on their way to the tomb. They want to pay their last respects. They want to do something to acknowledge their, their love, their their sorrow at his going. Now they they want to finish something that they were not allowed to do on Friday when he was taken down off the cross. They, they weren't permitted to take part in the, in the burial process, and they want to bring some expression, some contribution of, of their love and their horror to, to Jesus as, as, as Jesus is in, in the tomb now. They, they, they can't understand what's happened. They, they're just completely befuddled by what's taking place. And they know that they're where Jesus is. They watched him get buried, and they know there's a big stone that the bunch of them together can't move, and it makes you kind of wonder, well, what did you expect? You know, What did you think you were going to find when you, when you go to the cemetery and you have this intention that you want to anoint Jesus? What did you think was going to be there when you got there? Well, they expected to find the body anyway. They didn't know how they were going to get into the tomb, but they expected Jesus to still be there. And what else do you expect when you go to a cemetery three days after a burial? They should have at least considered what Jesus had said, because many times, especially during the last part of his ministry, Jesus had predicted that he would die, that he would be, um, that he would be uh, buried, and that he would be resurrected. You know, even when Jesus left the Passover meal, depending on how you do the counting, Wednesday or Thursday night, even when he left the Passover meal with his disciples, um, Jesus said, you'll all fall away because it's written, I will strike down the shepherd, strike down as in, as, as in killed, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. He, he's at least reaffirmed what he said many other times, that death was not the end, that he would die and that he would be resurrected. Or at the home of Simon the leper, Jesus is there having a, a banquet meal that Simon has put on and there's a woman who shows up She's not welcome. She's not invited. She's one of those kind of women. And she anoints Jesus with very costly uh, nard perfume. And what does Jesus say about it? She's done a beautiful thing. She's done what, she's, what she could. She anointed my body beforehand for burial. He, again, he's predicted in short time this, all this is going to take place. He's predicted his betrayal, his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection. And again, Death would have no claim on Jesus because he was sinless. But Jesus allows death to claim him because he identifies with us on whom death does have a claim so that by his resurrection, death's claim upon us would be forfeited. So that's why the New Testament writers over and over, they're, they're talking about the death of Jesus. It just becomes a, a very common theme. And this is what you have heard about um, so very often, you know, Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, he talks about God's act of putting Jesus to death at the hands of godless men so that he might raise him up as the victor over death. Um, Jesus' death came as a predetermined plan that God had proposed throughout time from Acts chapter 4, verse 27. Paul triumphantly speaks of Jesus saying, He was declared the Son of God, but with the power of the resurrection from the dead, Romans 1, 4. Um, His death was essential to those who believed in him. Paul explains that that our identity with Jesus, our union with him in his death and resurrection in Romans 6, 3 through 11, that his death was necessary in saving people. Um, Paul told the Corinthians, for I'm determined to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. To the Galatians, Paul taught that the Lord Jesus who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of God the Father, Galatians 1. Our, our union with Jesus in his death and resurrection is set forth in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verse 5 and 6. Um, Jesus' death and reconciliation put um, death, our enemy, away. In Ephesians 2, 16, um, he gave himself up for death for us to, that he might sanctify the church, that he might present the church in all her glory, as holy and blameless. That's Ephesians 5, 25. In Jesus, um, Philippians 2, 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. His death cancels out the certificate of death, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Col- Colossians 2:14. 14. And the writers of Hebrews, writes about the finality of what Jesus has done on the cross. He says, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ Jesus once for all. For one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified, Hebrews 10.10. And then it's no coincidence that the author of Hebrews also reminds us that now we can enter into the holy place um, by the the blood of Christ, uh, Hebrews 10.19, um, Paul declares, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. Uh, you know, although they, they, they wouldn't have grasped all this stuff because it did not make sense to them, and they should have because they'd heard Jesus predict his death over and over and over. It is, is it, but still, it's a subject that didn't fit their understanding of Messiah. And so they didn't understand it when he died. They didn't under, entertain the idea that his death was significant for the Messiah. So when they come to the tomb... Now that he's dead, they don't expect anything else. They did not expect to find what they actually did find. And so here are the women on their way to the tomb, and we can imagine, as with any person grieving, going back to the cemetery uh, three days after the burial, that their, their heads are down, they're, they're, they're grief-stricken, and they're talking among themselves about the problem of, of how they're going to get to Jesus to... Uh, to anoint him. They don't know how they're gonna move the stone. And when they get there, they look up and they see, um, they look up, they see that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. And then Matthew, of course, indicates that the stone was rolled away during an earthquake when an angel appears and sits on the stone, terrifies the guards. They get there, these women do, knowing none of this, knowing none of what has taken place that resurrection morning, and they get there fully expecting to have a problem because not only had they seen Jesus buried and they know, they know they're at the right place and they saw the rock placed in front of the tomb, but it had been officially sealed by the Roman government to keep anybody from opening this rock and stealing the body. And there was a guard unit of Roman soldiers placed in front of the tomb to keep anybody from stealing the body. And, and the guard unit is gone and the seal is broken and the stone has been rolled out of the way They don't know what to make of it. Now it even gets more complicated because they come now to the open tomb. What do they expect to find? A dead Jesus inside the tomb. They saw him go in there. And when you're dead, you're dead. Unless your friend's only mostly dead, in which case you want to go through his pockets and search for spare change. But in this case, they expected to find a very dead Jesus. And what do they find instead? They find a young man dressed in a white robe. I don't think they're thinking that this is an angel. You know that because you read the story. But I don't think that they know that. They see this young man who's very calm and collected sitting there on the bench where Jesus was laid. And of course, they're quite unnerved. They're, they're terrified. They're afraid. There's a lot of stuff they don't understand. I think they're afraid of things they don't understand and things that they do understand. They're, the events of things here... Have, have staggered them. The, the whole business about the stone being moved away. And here's this young man whom they have never seen, who seems to know a lot about them. You know, he, they, this young man knows why they're here. And this young man um, knows whom they are seeking. And this young man is familiar with their purpose, why they have come, and who they associate with, and even identifies a person that they know who's not there, who's Peter. You know, something inexplicable has taken place and they're trying to put these things together and it just doesn't make sense. So they're afraid of what they don't know, but they're also afraid of what they do know. They do know that Jesus' body was there, it's not there now. And they know that this young man, who's an angel and they don't know it's an angel, has an explanation for them that he shouldn't know. He shouldn't have that information. It just doesn't register with them. They don't know what he means when he says, he's not here, he's risen, just like he told you. Or as uh, Luke says it, why do you seek the living among the dead? You know, as if, as if, duh, you know, why are you here looking for a living guy and you're looking in a graveyard? They, they don't understand all that. It does take some time. It takes several days before these women and the disciples start to put the pieces together and grasp what has just taken place. And there, uh, again, from our text in Matthew 16, verse 6, I think we're at, uh, where the, the, this angel says, Come see for yourself, for the place where, where they put him. Um, back to Mark chapter 9, verse 31. Jesus himself said, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They'll kill him. When he's killed, he will rise three days later. Again, they're trying to understand that, but it's starting to dawn on them after these many resurrection appearances that he really is alive. And so they begin to devote themselves. We are told in Acts chapter 1, verse 16, they begin to devote themselves to fellowship with other Christians. They start hanging out with other believers and they're continually devoting themselves to prayer and they're waiting for the thing that Jesus has promised to them, and that is that His coming, this Helper, this Holy Spirit, which we'll learn about in Acts chapter 2. So they continually devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, to prayer, and they're delighted because they have been considered worthy um, to be counted among Jesus' followers. Now, that's the story of Easter. That's a story that you have heard dozens and dozens of times before. But let's look at it with a slightly different spin. We've been studying the book of Romans. Let's go back to where we left off in Romans chapter 8. We'll just look at one verse. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. In this one verse, we've already covered this, but I just want to spin from this. Romans eight thirty-four. Paul says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now, already in our book of Romans, we've learned that Jesus died for sin. He makes an atonement. That means he makes reparations. By means of this atonement, he has propitiated God, that means that he satisfied God's anger against our sin. He's propitiated that the wrath has been turned aside. Our sins deserve his wrath, but it's been turned away from us. And moreover, um, since Jesus had no sin of his own to atone for, we learn that he does this atoning vicariously. That means that he's our substitute. He does it in place of us. And again, I suppose the most common response to all of that and those fancy words is, we know, we've already heard it, we've heard this dozens of times before. We already know all that, and we've known it for a very long time. Why keep repeating all this business about the death of Jesus? Well if you really do know this and you really do live by faith in christ and you understand the atonement there probably is no reason to keep repeating it you're you're there you're there already although i think it's true that those who know it best love to hear it over and over and over again as Catherine Hankey's song she says i love to tell the story For those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. I want to suggest to you that we do need to hear it again and hear it often. And it's for the very same reason that Paul keeps bringing it up to us throughout the book of Romans. Remember, he's writing to the Roman Christians to provide them assurance of their salvation. And the reason he's writing about assurance is that there is such strong tendency for us to waver in our faith and to doubt that we really are saved. And we have these occasions where our our faith is weak and we have occasions where because of our sin, we wonder, are we still worthy? Does He still love us? We we doubt our salvation. Are we worthy to be saved? Does He love us still? If you find yourself thinking like that, you're the person that needs to hear the old, old story once again. You need to hear that Jesus died for your sin, bearing God's punishment in your place. Uh, Acts, I can't get it yet, uh, 1631. The Philippian jailer story, anyway, where the Philippian jailer asked Paul, what must we do to be saved? And Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then you want to ask, okay, that's all I need to do to be saved. But what if I sin? Well, you should eliminate the question, what if? You have sinned. You have sinned greatly since your salvation, and you will continue to sin. There's no what if about it. You are a sinner. You continue to sin. The question is rather, did Jesus die for my sin or didn't he? Because if he did, then the punishment for my sin has already been undertaken by Jesus in my place, and there is therefore no one who condemns. So when Paul says, who is he that can condemn? There is no one who can condemn. The punishment of my sin has been paid for. And then so the next question is, well, what if I'm saved, but then I start doubting my salvation? Well, let me ask you this. Is your doubt sin itself? Is it a sin or isn't it? Because if it's not a sin, if your doubting is not a sin, if it's just mere intellectual, you know, Quizzing, and you want to ask God, you, want, you, have, you have unanswered questions. This, this, the Lord loves us to approach Him with these unanswered questions, to express our doubt. He's not threatened when, when we have doubts. He loves for us to approach Him. That, that's not a problem. Most Christians have doubt, and we're free to come and ask God those questions and state why we don't understand. If it is a sin, if your doubt is a sin, then ask is it an outright disbelief or is it just the fact that you, you, you doubt? Does your doubting then separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? And I don't mean doubt in the sense that you never were saved, that you, you don't trust in the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. I'm talking strictly about people who are saved, who are regenerate. If you have never placed your faith in Him, you are not redeemed, you are not regenerate. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about real believers. And we go through those seasons of doubt. And it's to us when we doubt that Paul says, Christ died for your sin. When Jesus hung on the cross, Jesus said of his atoning work, It is finished. That was the last words that he uttered on the cross, that it was finished, it's finished. There's nothing that can ever be added or taken away. The work of redemption is finished on the cross. Well, if it's finished, why are we talking about the resurrection? What does the resurrection add to redemption? The answer is nothing. The resurrection does not add to the finished work of Christ. When Christ died on the cross and he said it's finished, it was finished there on the cross. The resurrection doesn't add anything to that. So let me go back to my original point. It's not so much what proves the resurrection as what does the resurrection prove. So the empty tomb first establishes the fact that in, when Jesus says, it is finished, it was finished. That everything that needed to be done to redeem sinners, to make us in a right relationship with God, was accomplished. Finally, completely nothing more to be added and his resurrection is living proof of that effect. And the empty tomb means that Jesus in fact rose from the dead just like he said he would. He said he would be raised from the dead. Well, so what? What if he did rise from the dead? What does that to me? Mean? It means that he accomplished what he said he was going to accomplish and that the Father accepted from Jesus what needed to be done because it is completely inconceivable that God the Father should thus verify the claims of Jesus by resurrecting him if what he said was not true. The point of the resurrection really is to prove, to verify our justification, which is based on his death. It's God showing that Jesus' death, that atonement, has indeed happened, and that we are indeed justified from all of our sin. Well, let me put it this way. Jesus said while he was alive on earth, he said that he was going to die for sin, becoming the ransom for many, and in time, we know that he did die, and he was placed in the tomb, and then he was there at least for three days. Nobody argues that point, right? We believe that he was alive, that he died, and that he, he was buried. No dispute there. The question that we have is, did he die for my sin or not? I mean, because one thing just to say, I'm going to die for the sins of all people, but how do we know? How do we know? What if, he was, what if he was deluded? What if he just thought he was the Messiah and he really wasn't? You know, what if he thought he was the Son of God and the Savior? Or what if he said he was sinless? What if he, what if he really thought he was sinless? And suppose he had committed the, the smallest of sin. He told his mom, I like your cooking, it's great. It's the best meal I've ever had. And no, that dress does not make you look fat. What if he had lied, just a little white lie? Well, in that case, he was a sinner and his death would not have made him right with God for himself, let alone for anyone else. It's essential that his death was for others, that, it, that the atonement is accomplished for other people. Now, when the morning of the resurrection comes, When the body of Jesus is raised and the stone is rolled away, it is the verification that God has accepted that and God is assuring us all that he said, especially the part about it being finished, it is finished and God accepts that. And so God raises him from the dead to verify the claims that he made and the hope that we have. Romans 8.34, who is it who condemns? No one. Who could possibly condemn us when Jesus has died for us and his resurrection proves that God has accepted it and we are justified through it? Now, I hope then you can understand why I say the critical question is less about what proves the resurrection is more, what does the resurrection prove? Which is why, once again, I need to hear the same old, old story once again. I love to tell the story, of unseen things above, of Jesus and His glory, of Jesus and His love. I love to tell the story because I know it's true. It satisfies my longing as nothing else can do. I love to tell the story, for those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. And when in scenes of glory I sing the new, new song, which will be the old, old story that I have loved so long. Let's pray. Thank you, Father God, for the assurance that we are saved. In spite of the fact that we have questions and doubt, in spite of the fact that sometimes because of our sin, we don't feel saved. And we wonder if unworthy beings like ourselves can inherit eternity and be counted as sinless. It doesn't depend on us, not on anything that we do or anything that we say. It depends only on what Christ Jesus has done on the cross. And today, this Easter morning, we affirm what was done on the cross, finished our redemption, and the resurrection is the joyful declaration that you have proved it, Father God, by raising Christ Jesus from the dead, and we, therefore, will rise from the dead as well. Father, I pray, teach us the old, old story in a new, new way. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.